Welcome. You're listening to WO Voices, a podcast series from Women in Optometry magazine. We're delighted you could join us. Welcome. We're here today with Gabrielle Zweitza-Juniak, optometrist uh, who graduated in 2016 with debt, as so many optometrists do these days. And uh, the great news is that just about a year ago in February 2021, she opened her own private practice called Opt Vision Studio in Chicago. Uh, Dr. Juniak, thanks so much for being here. And I know people love to hear the stories of how you eliminated your student debt and got yourself into a position where you could uh, pick on the pick up the new debt of of opening a practice. So welcome. Thank you so much, Marjolyn, and thank you for having me. Tell me a little bit about uh, the the debt load that you came out of optometry school with. That's certainly not an unusual story. Yes, certainly. So I graduated with approximately $153,000 in debt. Um, At that time, about $20,000 of that was actually solely interest that had compounded while I was a student. Um, I did live at home, so I attended the Illinois College of Optometry, and I I was a commuter, so I was able to save a little bit um, of money that way. But it was still a pretty staggering amount, and um, I, I just didn't have a plan when I graduated of what I was going to do in order to eliminate that debt and kind of get my feet on the ground so that I could, you know, think about purchasing a home or, you know, moving forward in my career. Mm-hmm. And so when did it kind of strike you that you needed a plan? So the big eye-opening experience that really made me start thinking about a plan was when I had graduated, you know, I was 26 years old, you know, living with my parents, and I I really wanted to purchase like a a condo or a home or just somewhere to live, wanted to start building some equity. And I remember, you know, talking to all of these mortgage brokers, and pretty much they all told me that I wouldn't qualify for a mortgage without a cosigner just because my debt to income ratio was so, so high. Um, And I really didn't have any substantial tax history. So my, the plan that I formulated at that moment was, you know, I'm just going to focus on getting rid of my optometry school loans and kind of attack them aggressively. And at that time it was okay. You know, I was young. I still had the opportunity to live at home with my parents. So I really took advantage of that and, you know, came up with a plan that I would actually pay down my loans weekly in order to, um, because the interest was compounding daily. So I was actually, I had requested from my employer that I would be paid every week. And so I was kind of just paying as I went along instead of making lump sum payments. I was just making smaller payments as I went. And so what, what ended up happening? Did you, did you, there's, it's a kick, right? To see that uh, principal amount decreasing. Oh yeah, yeah. It's a huge, it's a huge driver of motivation when you see that that yeah. number go down steadily. And I think it's always the worst at the very beginning when the number is really, really large. It feels like you're running through mud almost when you're paying down that loan. But once you know you you get a significant chunk of it paid down, it's kind of just like a sprint to the finish. And mm-hmm. so I. I don't know if I were at the stage of life I'm in now, you know, I'm married and I have a home. I don't know if I would attack it in the same way that I did at that time. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand that everybody's situation is different when it comes to student loans. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it was the right thing for me to do at the moment. And I was able to pay them off in about two years. Wow. That's incredible. So did you, did you go, did you have a strategy? Did you go with the highest interest loans first or did you sort of pay a, a bit on each of them? What, I mean, did you have multiple loans? I did. So what I did was I, I refinanced my loans. So that, and what I did is I did a larger payment amount because I knew I would be paying extra every month regardless. So that also was what really, you know, disqualified, disqualified me from getting a mortgage just because my payment amount was so high. So they were able to give me mm-hmm. the lowest possible interest rate. And I, I remember I had tried with like SoFi, I got rejected for some reason, but I, I was able to refinance with Laurel Road and they were really great. And that's who I stuck with towards to the entire end. And did you have a, a two-year time frame in mind or did that kind of present itself? That definitely presented itself. I didn't know if I would be able to make it happen within two years, but it just so happened that I was, my husband and I were actually looking to purchase a condo in Chicago around that two-year mark. So once it got really close, I just really was motivated to pay them all off before we purchased the condo and just kind of made it happen there at the end. That's great. That's exciting. And so you, then, you know, you get rid of this one chunk of debt and you, you pick up a, a, a condo mortgage, presumably. And, and what made you decide this was a good time to start your own practice and invest in that? Yeah. So starting my own practice was just something that I had always planned on doing. I, in fact, I remember writing my admissions essay to ICO about starting a private practice and you know, in Chicagoland, there's a very strong Polish American community, and my parents are both from Poland. I'm fluent in Polish, so that was just always the plan down the road. And now that I had this a little bit more wiggle room in terms of my finances, you know, it was kind of just like, okay, on to the next challenge. I'm going to start saving money to purchase the property for which I would start my practice in. And how long did that take to to find the spot or to kind of uh, set set up? all those wheels. <laughs> yeah. So that, that just kind of fell into my lap. I, I, you know, I'm always looking at real estate. I'm always curious as to what's out there and the cost. And, um, we just found a, a spot that was the first floor of a three unit apartment building, pretty typical, uh, Chicago style where first floor is commercial and then there's residential above. And it was a good, nice space, not too big, not too small in an area of the city that's still affordable to, to purchase property at. So it was just one of those things that kind of fell into my lap. But it, it was about two years between the time that I paid off all of my student loans to the time that I had purchased the office space. So did your startup costs include the actual purchase of, of the, the location? Okay. Yes, I didn't purchase the entire building, but I purchased the first floor, the commercial unit. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, and, and how much work did you have to do to get this space ready for a, for a practice? Yeah. So unfortunately the closing on the unit was in March of 2020. So right as everything was shutting down is when (laughs) 
and we were ready under contract in in January, I believe, January or February, we were under contract. So there was really no backing out at that point. So fortunately, you know, when optometrists weren't able to practice at that time, it was about two and a half months, kind of pivoted and just spent a lot of time at the office, kind of repainting certain walls that I felt comfortable painting, kind of um, formulating a plan as to how we were going to do the build out. So from the time that the office space was purchased to the day that we opened our doors, it was a little bit less than a year. Mm. That's, uh, I'm sure, longer than you had hoped. <laughs> yeah. What were you doing in the meantime? <laughs> um, a lot of painting at the office. And then once uh-huh. everything opened back up, just working. It took, it took uh-huh. a long time to get our building permits, which is pretty typical in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And even more typical during the, the pandemic, I'm sure, too, where everything slowed down. Yeah. And um, so what was your vision for uh, for Opt Vision Studio? So my, my vision really was to kind of create just a neighborhood optometrist feel. I had previously worked in different modalities, and I, I really love you know, I, I re- recognize the fact that I really loved seeing families and I love seeing them from year to year. You know, it, it's tough, like working in downtown Chicago, everyone is so transient. You know, you see someone one year and they're telling you that they're going to move back to the UK the next year. So you, there's just a lot of disconnect. And I recognize that I personally would like to be more of the neighborhood optometrist um, where I could see families and I can see people from year to year. I think it provides better quality of care for patients as well. And just establishing those connections is just really nice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And is it in a Polish community? So there's still a lot of um, Polish individuals that live in the area that I practice in. But to be honest, they're just scattered all over Chicagoland now. Does the fact that you're fluent in Polish um, pull them in? Oh, yeah. I would say about 50% of my patients only speak Polish. Wow, that's uh, significant. So do you have staff who speaks Polish as well? I do. Everyone but one individual doesn't speak Polish. <laughs> wow, that's uh, so you, you really, um, that's a, a real strong uh, a, attraction then, obviously, for, for your patient base. So tell me a little bit about the practice. What do people see when they come in? Yeah. So our practice is, you know, we, we kind of designed it to be more of a, a modern space. We actually got a couple of young artists to create a sort of a, a mural on one of our walls, which, you know, at this point, we're so used to seeing that it's like nothing, but it's the first thing that people see when they walk in because it spans. I think the ceilings are just shy of 12 feet. So it goes from floor to ceiling. And there's, um, we incorporated a lot of things in it that included, you know, things from the community, things to do with optometry and glasses and eyes. It's really cool. Um, people have fun just looking at it and finding things in it. So that's the big thing. Our, our optical is quite small, but it's cozy. We've got, you know, good selection of frames, something for everyone. Um, and then currently we're working on reconstructing one of the exam rooms too. So we kind of waited to complete the entire office until it was time to grow. So that saved a little money too. just kind of waiting to take on that risk of, you know, investing more money in the space until there was a need for it. Well, you're only one year out and there's a need for it. 
Yes. Yeah. That's so we're, right. getting, we're getting busier. <laughs> and is it, uh, is it you alone as the, as the OD? It is. Yes. Mm-hmm. And how many um, exam lines do you have? So we have two exam lanes, um, one that's currently not built out, but we're going to build it out this summer. Oh, that's nice. Okay. So that will, uh, uh, that will, that will help the, um, the, the flow, the patient flow. Definitely. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Druniak, it must've been discouraging to hear when you were a new graduate that they weren't going to, um, qualify you without a, without a, um, Cosigner. I mean, that feels vaguely patriarchal, um, and, and but maybe that happens to to ODs of of both genders. Um, do you think that there are certain factors of of the negotiation process or the application process that that um, is particularly important to women to know? You know. Having, having been through it, I don't know if there's too many parts of the process in particular, but I, I would really encourage, you know, women and just everyone in general to really try to educate themselves on personal finance and kind of having that open discussion with friends and colleagues. I know previously it was a very taboo to talk about finances and income, but I think there's a lot everyone can learn from each other. And I think, you know, as optometrists, we're in this situation where, you know, we, we make a decent amount of income, but nobody really teaches us how to invest and how to, you know, itemize our tax deductions. And I think learning all those things and just kind of taking the time to educate ourselves on it can really, you know, push ourselves forward in our personal lives, but also, you know, just as a profession in general. So how did you, what resources did you use to, to bring yourself more up to speed on that? Oh, wow. In the beginning, I just read a lot of articles online, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if there's one resource in particular. I read a lot of books on personal finance. I talked to a lot of colleagues that were like-minded, like myself, that really helped me out. Um, now, these days, I really turn to Odie's on Finance. Um, mm-hmm. It's a really great group on Facebook that, you know, just kind of puts everything out in the open, um, which I think is great. I think, you know, some people post anonymously, which is fine, but other people, you know, just kind of let it all all out there. And I think it's really helpful. We can really like learn from one another. Well, that's an interesting point, because I think sometimes when we talk about issues like um, pay parity and things like that, as, as long as these discussions are veiled or, you know, clouded or, or just, uh, obscured by, by sort of this idea that, that talking about money is, is somehow uh, taboo. Um, it becomes harder to know what's, what's what, right? So, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think there's this kind of common perception that, well, yeah, ODs graduate with debt, but not really with the, um, I'm not sure that there's a, a full understanding of the amount of, of debt that young ODs come out of school with or many of them do. Right. And then I've talked to so many colleagues of mine who have all said the same thing that nobody was really aware of how much they would have to pay back when they graduated, which is a problem. It's something that we should be talking about, you know, while we're students, 
not, you know, years down the road once we're graduated and life has moved forward and it becomes significantly harder to formulate a plan. I think it's one of those things that we should be talking about a little bit earlier on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And do, do you talk to, to younger, um, uh, you know, to, to students or, or your younger colleagues about, about it? Are you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very vocal about it. And, um, Luckily, you know, I've, I've worked with a lot of students who are now in optometry school or students that want to go to optometry school and kind of, you know, trying to just not, you know, try to tell them what to do, but trying to let them know what my story was and how it helped me. And hopefully that'll allow them to consider their options mm-hmm. once it comes that time if they decide to go to school. Now, for four years, being able to live at home instead of having to pay uh, room and board was, you know, somewhere was, would, was I'm sure, a, a, a nice sa- savings for you, too. Um, I think your, your loans could have been significantly higher if you hadn't done that. Uh, what other um, strategies, because that one's not available to everybody, but, you know, how else can, can even students and young grads keep their um, expenses down? You know, when you're a student, the main focus is just getting through school. And I I get that. I was in the same boat. You know, you don't really think about what's to come afterwards. And a lot of times when I talk to students about it now, they're kind of just like, okay, well, let me just get through next semester. You know, their focus is not, you know, their debt when they graduate. And I get that. You're just living from week to week or month to month and just trying to to make grade and then pass boards. Um, so while, while a student, I think the big thing is, you know, if you have the opportunity to commute, it really does save you money. I, I get it. It's not an option for everyone and not everyone wants to, um, which is totally fine. But as a, as a graduate, I would say the biggest thing you can do, especially as a new graduate, is just living within your means. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you have a, a large amount of debt, don't purchase the massive home or, you know, you don't need a luxury car right away. All of those things will come um, and you'll be in a much better position to afford them and, you know, even have money saved in case of, you know, you fall on hard times or a pandemic breaks out or, you know, numerous other situations could arise. Right. Or even an opportunity comes along that, you know, you wouldn't have the the option to act on if, um, you know, as you as you sort of found out uh sort of early on, you know, buying the house at that point wasn't what you could do. But a couple of years later, uh, you were able to to get what you wanted. So uh, all in good time, I guess, right? <laughs> right. Just got to gotta be patient. So you mentioned that you chose to purchase that first floor of the building where you put your office. What made you take on the, what I'm assuming is, is additional um, debt, to, to purchase versus leasing a space? Yeah. So initially, you know, there's a lot more money that goes into purchasing an office space as opposed to leasing office space. But in the long term, there's, you know, a few benefits to doing so, you know, there's no risk of rent increase, you know, you're kind of your own landlord, which does come with its own set of challenges and responsibilities as well. Um, but, you know, if years down the road, you decide to sell the practice, you can also use that equity to rent out the space to the next owner and, you know, retire off that money or just have added income. So there are some benefits, especially if you look in an area that's very slowly gentrifying. 
Um, mm-hmm. If, you know, 20 years down the road, that space could be worth significantly more than for what you purchased it. So just kind of keeping all those things in mind can uh, work to your benefit in the end. But it wasn't a super short term strategy for you. You plan on being there for a while. I do. Yes. So, you know, it has to be one of those places where you're not looking to to work there for a few years and then move on to greener pastures. You kind of have mm-hmm. to be set on staying there for a while. Yeah. So that, but you, you did the research and the um, sort of the, the market and demographics research that made you say you, you want it to be there. Right. Excellent. Well, it's interesting to look at specifically the, the financial considerations that went into the, these early career choices that you made. So I really appreciate you, you sharing all of those. Oh, you're so welcome. And, you know, I hope it helps somebody out there. I'm always open to, you know, talking about the topic. If ever anyone wants to reach out to me via email, uh, my email address is doctor. So dr at optvisionstudio.com, all one word. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much, Marjolyn. And thank you to Women in Optometry to always bring these, you know, topics to light. It's really helpful. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to be a part of WO Voices, please let us know. You can find us on the web at womeninoptometry.com, on Facebook at WO Magazine, and on Twitter at WomenODs. We'd love to hear from you.